We live in a fallen world with fallen hearts that until we are with Jesus in glory, we will always face this tendency to slide into redefining God in some small way like we'd like Him to be. And the moment we do that, we're blaspheming Him. We come now to the next miracle, which is the wind ceasing as Jesus gets into the boat. So before Jesus calmed the wind and calmed the waves by speaking to them, peace be still, here He calms the wind and the waves simply with a desire. It's a miracle of His will. He just wills the the sea to be calm, and it is. He just wishes it to be calm, and it is. The wind ceased And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Where in the world did that come from? Because I thought that we had left that episode behind. I thought now we're talking about walking on water and wind and waves. I thought the loaves were last week's message. How did loaves make their way back into this? Instead, we are told they were utterly astounded. They were terrified, they were fearful, they were frightened, they were astounded. And Mark says the reason for their astonishment was they didn't understand the loaves. So somehow their misperception of the loaves event was the basis for their fear in this event. And furthermore, Mark says, but their hearts were hardened. Now, Jesus is going to go on to conduct another feeding, the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8. Interestingly enough, that account will also end with yet another statement of the disciples' non-understanding. And this is almost verbatim. Look in your notes. We read this, Mark chapter 8, verse 17. After the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand Are your hearts hardened? Twice, Jesus speaks of hard hearts that the disciples have, both times in connection to the loaves event and their non-perception of the feeding event. And both times, Jesus says, this is the cause, this is the instance, and this is because your hearts are hard. So now we see a couple of things. First of all, we see the connection. Because the loaves, they didn't understand the loaves, they were perplexed, they were fearful, they were astounded to see Jesus on the water. So the connection here is what? This is why John was helpful. Because John showed us the connection. John showed us that this fever of excitement, this feverish excitement over this man Jesus and what he was doing got the crowds all glassy-eyed about a new political leader who was going to change everything. And these disciples got caught up in it too. They got caught up in this whole Jesus as king thing. And we know that they had a tendency to that. Because remember when James and John's uh, mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, when you come into your kingdom and you're sitting on your your throne, could, could my son sit on one side and one on the other? 
which shows us that there was a continuing problem that Jesus faced, and that was the problem that people were constantly wanting to make him into a political redeemer instead of a spiritual redeemer. They were constantly trying to make him into a physical deliverer instead of what he came to be. To be. And so he, was, he was always facing this same problem. That's why I would say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then we would be conducting ourselves very differently. But their misunderstanding, their, the fact that they got caught up in that excitement and they too began to lose sight of who they were beginning to see Jesus to be. And instead, they were beginning to see him like the crowd was so excited. And they were probably even picturing themselves in long robes, having positions of importance now that Jesus has ascended to the throne. And they got caught up in this as well. And the fact that they got caught up into it was the basis for why when Jesus comes to them in the greatest revelation yet in the Gospel of Mark, when He comes to them revealing Himself as the Creator of all things, as the one who treads on the water, they weren't expecting that. They were completely taken by surprise. They didn't recognize Him, thought He was a ghost. They were afraid. Why? Because we're told their hearts were hard. We read that phrase, hard hearts, quite a lot in Scripture, right? And it's a difficult phrase to wrestle with because it's a phrase that's used about some of the worst characters in Scripture. Earlier, Mark used it to describe the Pharisees who want to kill Jesus. But the most famous hard-hearted person was Pharaoh, right? He's the most well-known hard-hearted person because we're told over and over how he hardened his heart. So let's take the Pharaoh And let's use him to help us understand what the scriptures mean when they say someone is hard hearted. So Moses comes to Pharaoh. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way. Moses says, all right, you asked for this. And then all these bad things start happening. The Nile turns to blood. All the water in the land turns to blood. There's frogs everywhere. There's gnats everywhere. There are sores all over everybody's body. Darkness all over the land. Crops die. Hail, brimstone, all kinds of bad things are happening. To which Pharaoh responds, seeing, hearing the command, God says, let my people go. Now, here's what you're going to get because you don't. All these things happen. Pharaoh responds to all that by, oh, sure. I I should have done that before the first plague. Not at all. In fact, his response to the plagues, just to call it for face value for what it is, his response to the plagues is perplexing. Because you would think anybody in their right mind after about plague number three would have been glad to see those people go. His response is perplexing. That is the essence of what Scripture means when it says the heart is hard. In Scripture, hard-heartedness means fallen man's tendency to not perceive God rightly and not perceiving Him rightly to then not react to Him rightly. Perceiving God wrongly, you react to Him wrongly. And that's precisely what Pharaoh did, wasn't it? When he should have said, oh, absolutely. 
Nile turn to blood? All the water in our wells turn to blood? <laughs> Please, go. Instead, it's this puzzling reaction. And what you say, why are people, res- why is he responding that way? Now think back through Mark's gospel at all the examples we've been shown of hard-heartedness in which Jesus heals the man with the withered hand and they look at Jesus and hate Him and start conspiring to kill Him. Or Jesus heals and cleanses lepers and the more He does this, the more people hate Him. That is what Mark is showing us, the hard-heartedness of people that not perceiving God rightly, they therefore don't react to Him rightly. Now let's put ourselves back in the boat. What's happening in the boat? In the boat, the disciples have fallen prey to earthly ambitions. And that has caused their perception of Jesus to become perverted. They were beginning to understand Him as who He was. Remember back in the Remember back in the boat in the first time when he calms the sea and they're saying, who is this man? Who is this man? And this is why Jesus comes to them. This is why Jesus makes them leave, makes them get in the boat, makes them go out into the storm. Because as we said at the beginning, Jesus is going to meet their greatest need first. And their greatest need is to have their hard hearts softened. How is Jesus going to soften their hard hearts? He's going to soften their hard hearts by answering the question they asked on the first storm. Remember? Same sea, also at night. Same boat, same disciples. Jesus calms a storm. They ask, who is this man? Who is this man? Now another storm, another night, same sea. Same Jesus, same boat. And Jesus says, I am that I am. I am the great I am. You need to quash your thoughts of earthly kingdoms. You need to stamp out your ambitions for earthly advance. You need to stop seeing me in even the slightest way as your ticket to glory. Because that's not who I am. I am that I am. So we'll leave ourselves with this. When the Scriptures call the disciples, when Jesus calls them hard-hearted, The thing to understand about hard-heartedness is hard-heartedness is not black and white, night and day. It's not either you are hard-hearted or you're not at all. There's degrees of hard-heartedness. There's phases. There's levels of hard-heartedness. The disciples certainly are not hard-hearted in the same way the Pharisees are. But the disciples have started to fall into this misperception of Jesus. And the correction for that, look to Jesus. Here I am. I am that I am. Look upon me. All of us face the exact same temptation. All of us. 
the temptation to hard-heartedness, the temptation to start seeing Jesus, to start seeing God a little differently in ways that fit our paradigms just a little better, that fit into what we would like just a little better. All of us have that tendency, the tendency to slide into hard-heartedness. God does not soften the heart of man one time and it's done. But we live a life in which we are constantly tempted to slide into hard-heartedness, meaning we don't stop believing, but we start perceiving God just a little bit more in our image, just a little bit more like we like to think of Him. Which is why it was so fitting to start the whole story by drawing attention to the fact that they wanted to make Jesus king by force. So the solution, the biblical solution to sliding into hard-heartedness is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and came to the apostles on the sea. The Word became flesh and we have it here. This is the necessary remedy for all of our tendency to slide into hard-heartedness. Return to the Word, return to the Word, return to the Word. It is simply not valid for the Christian to say, you know, I've read the Bible. I know God. I know what He's like. I know what He's not like because I've read the Bible. More than once, in fact. I got it. We live in a fallen world with fallen hearts that until we are with Jesus in glory, we will always face this tendency to slide into redefining God in some small way like we'd like Him to be. And the moment we do that, we're blaspheming Him. You know, the people that were being fed and celebrating Jesus, they weren't demeaning Jesus, were they? By calling Him the prophet and thinking of Him as their great earthly deliverer, they weren't demeaning Him. They were glorifying Him. But they were glorifying Him in ways that were not consistent with who He has shown Himself to be. And it matters not how much glory you give to God if it is not in agreement with what He has shown us, then you are demeaning Him. You can define God in any glorious way that you want. And if it's not how He has revealed the great I Am, you're blaspheming Him. You're making Him in your own image. And that may be the highest image that you can imagine. But unless it's what He showed Himself to us to be, we are blaspheming His name. So we must return to the Word, return to the Word. The Word is the only course correction for our tendencies into hard-heartedness.